the reading of God's word. As Pastor Jonathan said, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 11, if you're using the Black Pew Bibles, uh, that's on page 961. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the, all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. The word of the Lord. You can go ahead and just keep your, uh, your place there in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, to this morning, um, hopefully you, you can see up there, we are starting a new sermon series today. So for several, several weeks now, we have been working through Romans chapter 8. That series has come to a conclusion. And now, as I just mentioned a little while ago, we're going to be starting a new sermon series today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we're going to be focusing our attention on these 58 verses found in this chapter 15, in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, to the Christians who were in the city of Corinth. Now, what you're going to notice as we continue to move through these, way, uh, through these weeks, Paul is wrapping up his letter, his letter that we have, 1 Corinthians here, to the church at Corinth, and that there's something very unique about this chapter. Um, when it comes to the idea of the resurrection of the dead, just this idea that revolves around resurrection life, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is very unique. It's the most densely concentrated, thought-out thinking in regard to this doctrine and to this way of thinking of, of the resurrection. And our aim is going to be to study this chapter over the next six weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, as I said, where we're going to peek out on Easter Sunday looking at verses 50 through 58, those great verses where Paul declares that death has no longer its sting. It has, has no victory, no dominion on us. Jesus Christ has defeated the powers of Satan, sin, and death, and that in the resurrection of Christ, we now have life in Jesus Christ. It's going to be a phenomenal phenomenal Sunday. So as we build up to Easter Sunday, I hope, hope you guys get, get excited about that uh, as well. But what we're going to do this morning before we get to Easter Sunday in those last verses is we're going to uh, start in the first 11 verses. We're going to start at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay? 
Now, before we move on, what we need to do is just lay some groundwork for what is going on in this chapter. I've said this before, and I'll say this for as long as I'm your preacher. Context is king. You have to have the context of what's going on around the Scripture that you're reading, or we travel travel the road of danger of misinterpreting the Bible if we just don't quite see what's going on. So when you read one verse... You have to look at the other verses around it. When you read a paragraph, you need to look at the chapter it's in. When you read the chapter, you have to look at the book it's in. When you look at the book, you have to know if it's in the New Testament or Old Testament. We have to know these things because that is how we rightly interpret and understand Scripture. So this morning, in regard to um, some some context that we can give to this letter, because we're just airdropping in, in a very real sense, to the very end of this letter, Paul has been talking to these believers in Corinth for 14 chapters. We just need to hit pause and think about at least two things. The apostle Paul himself gives some context to what he's about and then just give a little bit of context to the idea of the letter that he's written to these believers in Corinth, the context, some context behind 1 Corinthians. So first, what, what can we know about about Paul. We can know this. Paul was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. And in the world of Judaism, before Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul, Saul was the cream of the crop in the world of Judaism. He was the it man. He was the guy. He was sharp. He was a leader. He was the one that was getting things done. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul describes himself in this way. He says, I was confident in my flesh because I was, and then he lists a bunch of things that sort of describe his religious pedigree. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. So he says, before I became a believer, I was, in my mind's eye, I was doing it right. I was getting things done. If there was somebody who could stand out as the exemplary person of a true and legit God follower, he says it was me. And he even goes on in in Philippians to say that in this position of sort of religious elitism, Paul confessed that he was even so zealous for God that he was willing to persecute the church. And so the young church, Jesus' followers, were starting to crop up around him. And they were saying, Jesus is the Messiah. And to call Jesus the Messiah was to call Jesus equal with God. And for Paul, as a legitimate Jew, that was a no-go. And he was so zealous for the glory and the fame of God where he says, I'm going to stamp out these people who are ascribing divinity, deity, to this man, this carpenter from Nazareth. He's like, this isn't going to happen on my watch. And he was so zealous for the name of God that he was willing to persecute the church, he writes. But then on his, one of his journeys to persecute the church, Paul literally has the Damascus Road experience. The resurrected Jesus calls Paul to stop persecuting the church. And out of this experience, Paul becomes a Christian. Saul of Tarsus is no longer the persecutor of the church, but he is now Paul, the proclaimer of Christ. And it's this grace experience with the resurrected Jesus that spurs Paul on to preach the gospel where Christ has never been named. Now, the second thing that we need to know is that Paul is known for his writings. So that's some background on Paul. But Paul also wrote the majority of the New Testament that we have. 
So Paul was a church planter, but Paul was also a letter writer. And empowered by the Holy Spirit over and over again, Paul would write letters to these churches that he planted. That's where you get Romans and the first letter to Corinthians and the second letter to Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. These aren't just funny names out of nowhere. These are names of people and churches and cities that he has planted churches. And some of them are churches he hasn't planted. And some of them are just churches who are doing good things. And some are churches that are doing not so good things. And he's writing to them, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when you come to 1 Corinthians, what you have is a confluence of these two things in, in Paul's life. He planted the church in Corinth. And now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he is writing a letter to this church in Corinth. Now, this letter is going to cover many subjects that were causing discord in the church, but Paul eventually turns to the subject of the resurrection, chapter 15. And at the church in Corinth, in regards to the resurrection, there was confusion. Paul tells us that some people were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Some people might have been arguing that having the resurrection was just no big deal. Some people are already saying possibly that it already come, it already happened, and it's already passed. The event is done and over with. And if we could sum up the common thought that would have been swirling around the church at Corinth and, just, and, and put it into a question form, we could word it like this. The people at Corinth, the, 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 the mindset of what was going on in them was, does it really matter if the resurrection is true? Like, does it really legitimately matter if there is a resurrection of the dead? Can't we do without that doctrine? Isn't it okay to trust in Jesus but maybe not hold to this doctrine, to this way of thinking? Can't we have a true gospel apart from the resurrection? I mean, how crucially tied together are they? Are they even tied together at all? And it's in light of this common thinking that was swirling around the church at Corinth that Paul is going to take 58 verses to unpack and he's going to actually counter the wrong way of thinking. He is going to take up the idea that the resurrection is fundamental to the gospel. If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, Paul writes, we are of all people most to be pitied. At the core, at the very heart of the gospel stands a resurrected man, Jesus Christ himself. And the good news proclamation that spiritual death can become spiritual life is anchored in the physical death and the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel and the resurrection, they live and they die together. You can't have one without the other. Now, Paul's going to eventually turn and address the issue that was there. He's going to get there in verse 12, but something but Paul does something first before he gets there and begins to actually address the problem, verse 12. He's going to actually come and meet the Corinthian believers on common ground. Because just think about it. Right now, they stand at two polar opposite ends. Paul's over here going to argue the resurrection is essential for the gospel, and you have the Corinthian believers here over here going, well, probably not. And Paul could just come down and go, listen, I'm an apostle. You're thinking wrong. Stop your knucklehead thinking and start thinking rightly. 
I mean, I guess he could have done that, right? Chapter 15 could have been like three verses. You're being an idiot. Stop being an idiot. Start thinking my way. Chapter 16. I mean, I guess he could have done that, but he doesn't do that. What he does is he goes and he meets them on common ground. That's what these first 11 verses are. Paul is going to come to them and go, hey, remember when I showed up preaching you the gospel? Everybody go, yeah, we remember that. Remember what I preached to you? Absolutely, I remember what, what you preached to us. Remember how you received it and believed it? Absolutely, we remember how we received it and believed it. He's going to go, good. Now, in light of that, let's start thinking rightly about the resurrection. So Paul's going to get there and start correcting wrong thinking, but first he's going to meet them on the common ground of what is the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the question all of us need to be asking. It's the question all of us need to have an answer for. We need true belief in a true gospel, and that's exactly where Paul is going to go. So if you could take up these first 11 verses, sum them up into a little, a little statement sentence, it would be this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential for the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential for the gospel. And we're going to take our 11 verses, we're going to break them down into three points. True belief, true gospel, true grace. If you're a note taker, those are your three bulleted headings right there. True belief, true gospel, true grace. So if you'd grab your copy of Scripture... We're going to be looking at the first two verses in chapter 15, and Paul's going to write this about true belief. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, the gospel which you received, the gospel in which you stand, and the gospel by which you are being saved. That is, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. True belief. When Paul came to Corinth, he came to them preaching the good news of a crucified Christ. For when he came to them, he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wrote that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And as we'll soon read, the idea of Christ's resurrection was just as critical to the gospel Paul preached as was the idea of crucifixion. So it's not like Paul preached the crucified Christ to them when he first showed up and planted the church, and now that there's some trouble, and he's like, whoa, 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 I forgot to add something to it. What he's going to say is the gospel of the crucified Christ necessarily ties along with it the idea of a resurrected Christ. So as Paul turns to these verses, his aim is to remind the Corinthians of something they actually already know. They have heard Paul preach this stuff before. When Paul was in Corinth, he preached the gospel. They received this gospel, and it was this gospel in which they stand. Gospel means good news. Paul preached the good news of Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. They heard, they received, they're standing in, and they were being saved by it. For this reason, Paul can call them brothers because they had received the preaching of the gospel and because they responded to it with repentance and faith in Christ, they have now been folded into the family of God. It's because of the reality of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and because of their trust in it that they were saved, they are being saved, and they continue to have that future hope of salvation. This is what Paul means when he says that it was through this gospel by which you are being saved. 
Now, this was the current reality for these brothers and sisters, these Christians who are in the church at Corinth. And if this is you or you're going, yes, man, I've heard this gospel. I've heard this good news message of Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus Christ resurrected. Then the reality that was true of them now becomes the reality that's true of you and that's, that's true of me. But notice that Paul goes on to write, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. With these words, Paul is not teaching that true believers are in danger of losing their salvation. Instead, these words are actually an encouragement for the Corinthians to stay the course. He's reminding them that they did not believe in vain. And he's calling them to continue to hold fast to the word that preached. He's like saying, no, no, no. I know what you received. I know what you believed. I know what you're standing on. I know what I preached to you. Now hold fast to that. God gripped you, and in turn, you were able to reach out and grasp onto God. Continue to hold fast to the words that were preached to you. So simply put, if you could sum up what Paul is going after in these first two words, his point is this, that these Corinthian believers, they do have true belief, and their true belief rests upon the true gospel. This isn't just true belief in something random. This isn't just true belief in some religious stuff. There's legitimate content to their belief. It's not just good enough to say, I'm a believer. Well, what do you believe in? Well, no, I just have this vague sense of believing things. It's not enough to just have, to be a spiritual person who just sort of does spiritual things and you, yeah, I'm believing some stuff. The Bible always says that true belief, which identifies a true Christian, always rests in the concrete facts of a true gospel, which is always, always, always clearly delineated in the scripture around Jesus Christ his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And this is exactly where Paul goes. Look in your copy of Scripture, verses 3 through 8. Paul is going to turn and now and unpack the content of their true belief. They are true believers, truly believing, resting their faith in the true gospel. What is the content of this true gospel? Verses 3 through 8. Paul writes, 4. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What was it that you received, Paul? What did you deliver to them? What is the content of the true gospel? It is this. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, evidenced that he actually died. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared, which is evidence that he was actually raised, and he appeared to people. Cephas, then to the twelve. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, the apostle Peter. Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And I love how Paul gives this little, little side note. Listen, many of these people are still alive. If you want to go talk to them, you can go find out who they are. Like I'm, He's like, I'm not blowing smoke here. Verse 7, then he appeared to James. This would be James, the brother of Jesus, the James who wrote the book of James in your Bible. Then to all the apostles, all the people who fit this category of being an apostle. Then, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul. Content of the true gospel laid out for us here in these verses. 
So when Paul came preaching the gospel in Corinth, he delivered to them that which was of first importance. Whenever you see that word, first importance, you're supposed to perk up a little bit. You're supposed to go, oh, this isn't second importance. This isn't, eh, if you eventually get to it, importance. This is of first importance. This is what I came preaching to you. I didn't dilly-dally around with a bunch of other things. When I came to you in Corinth, I went right after it. And what I went after was this. I am going to preach to you these things because these things were delivered to me and these things are of first importance. Paul didn't originate this message. It was given to him and he passed it along to the Corinthians. And as he passed it along to the Corinthians, they received this gospel message just as Paul had received this gospel message. Now, it's at this point in verses 3 through 5 that Paul turns and gives us the distilled essence of the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel consists of, if you want to know what the good news message of Jesus Christ is all about, if you want to know why the gospel is the power of God to those who are being saved, then you need to look no further than these verses right here. Jesus Christ is the center of the gospel. He's the nucleus. He's the epicenter of the good news message that lost people far from God can be found by Christ and pulled into a relationship with God. Jesus is the center of the gospel, and Paul shows this with four gospel facts that all orbit around Christ. You can see them there. They're the four sort of verbal ideas. It's this idea that Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, Christ appeared. He says, you want to know what the gospel is about? It's these things. Christ died for your sins. Christ was raised. Or, sorry, Christ died for your sins. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. Christ appeared. So in verse 3, when you turn your attention there, what you see is that Paul writes that Jesus Christ died for our sins and he was buried. See, in the Bible, sin is described as lawlessness and rebellion against God. Human beings are sinners by nature, and as a result, we rebel against God in our thoughts, we rebel against God in our words, we rebel against God in our actions. Sin deceives us into thinking that we are actually more wise than God. That's the whole beef with the whole incident in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. The enemy, the serpent of old, comes in and says, does God really say, listen, I know God said a lot of stuff, but surely... He's not all wise. Surely he can't know what's best for you. I need you to challenge God on this one. I need you to call, draw the conclusion that you can actually outdo God in some things. And in that moment, what happens with Adam and Eve? They forsake God's truth for Satan's lie, and it dumps the whole world out on its head. Sin comes in, it destroys, it corrupts, it wreaks havoc in every possible realm of creation, turning it upside down. Sin deceives us into actually thinking that we can actually outdo God. Instead of honoring God and giving thanks to Him, sin so distorts our thinking and so darkens our hearts that we actually begin to believe that we can do life on our own apart from God. Right? Some of you are living here in this world right now. You would not call yourself a Christ follower. And in certain ways, in certain areas of your life, whether you verbally express it or maybe just implicitly live your life, basically what you're doing is saying, listen, I can do this apart from God. I got this. 
For those of us who are believers here, you might be able to remember back to that time where like, that was your mode of operation. I've got this, God. I can be the king of my own life. I've got the reins. I will make the decisions for me, thank you. I might give you some mental assent. I might even agree that you are there far off. But in regards to a relationship, you've got nothing on me. Thank you very much. And I will go and do whatever I would like to do. And it's to this reality of sin which consumes every person who has ever existed. The Bible says we are owed the single wage. This kind of mindset, the Bible says, earns a paycheck. And the paycheck is this, death. Yes, physical death, but ultimately spiritual death. But instead of you and I dying for our sins as we deserve, instead of you and I getting our just desserts, our reward for rebellion and sin-stained, corrupted hearts, what we deserve is physical death, ultimate spiritual death, separated from God forever. Notice what Paul actually writes there in verse 3. Instead of you and me dying for our sins, Paul writes, Christ died for our sins. And he so died for our sins that they shoved him into the ground. This isn't some sort of pseudo-death. This wasn't some sort of fake-out. This wasn't like, he was a little dead, but a little bit alive. Or dead for, nah, he really wasn't dead. Well, this is dead-dead, in the grave dead. Three days dead. Spear shoved through his side, heart bursted, dead. Breath no longer in his lungs, dead. They buried him in the ground. He was inanimate. As a man, there was no more spark of life in him. He was dead. He was buried. But the true gospel just doesn't stop with a crucified and buried Savior. If Jesus Christ made the claims that he did, died on the cross, and we shoved him in the ground, and we could still go and find him, his bones in a grave, what on earth are we doing here? The good news doesn't ride on a crucified and buried Savior. The good news of the gospel rides on a crucified, buried, and resurrected Savior. That's the good news of the gospel. See, what makes the true gospel the true gospel is that Christ was also raised on the third day and he appeared to many witnesses. So Paul says, listen, he was raised on the third day. Don't take my word for it. Look at Peter. Look at James. Look to the 12. Look to those 500 brothers who at one time saw them. They're still alive. You can go talk to them. Talk to the apostles. Talk to me. We've had encounters with this. This wasn't done in a corner. This wasn't some conspiracy theory in order to perpetuate the teachings of Jesus because the guy was a crackpot after all. And, well, we don't really have anything else to do. I mean, man, I hate that we wasted three years of our life, but I don't really want to go back to fishing, so what can we do? Let's perpetuate this story and let's go die horrible deaths because this Jesus thing was really just a load of BS after all. That's not what happened. Paul is saying, listen, this thing was not done in a corner. People have seen and experienced the raised from the dead Christ. And this is the second and crucial element to the gospel. Christ was raised from the grave and he continues to reign to this day as the resurrected Savior. Sin and death no longer exercise dominion. Jesus has brought the rule of sin and death to an end through his sacrificial death and resurrected life. And Paul reminds these brothers, these believers, that all these things were in accordance with the Scriptures. This isn't something new. 
When Paul says these things were done in accordance with the Scriptures, the Scriptures for Paul were the Old Testament. You can go to the Old Testament and see in various places this overarching flow of God saying, there is coming this one, this servant who's going to suffer, this Messiah who's going to go to the cross, who's going to be hung on a tree, who's going to bear the curse, our curse that we deserve for our sin and our rebellion against a holy, righteous, good, and loving God. And he is going to not stay dead. His body will not see corruption, Psalm 16 says. He will come out of the grave. He will be the anti-King David. These things are in accordance with the Scriptures, and they can be verified by witnesses, eyewitnesses who have seen and encountered the resurrected Christ. That's the kind of evidence that holds up in a court of law. Right? I mean, damn, I'm just assuming like when you go in the court of law, when you just make a testimony like, yeah, I think this guy did something wrong, your court case may not carry in the end. But if you say this guy did something wrong and then Peter were to show up and then 12 others were to show up and then 500 people would show up and then James would show up and the apostles would show up and Paul would show up and they would all say, this guy did wrong, this guy did wrong, this guy did wrong, this guy did wrong. The judge is going to go, oh, the evidence is pretty overwhelming. Convicted. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's saying, listen, the resurrected Jesus, it's essential for the gospel. And know this, it wasn't done in the corner. There are verifiable eyewitnesses that you can even still in this day go and talk to. We'll go seen him, interacted with him, talked with him, experienced him. Simply put, If you were to think about the gospel and you had to narrow it down to what are the elements of the gospel, this would be it. Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. Jesus Christ raised from the dead on the third day, defeating Satan, sin, and death. The good news message of Jesus Christ is centered on the cross. Jesus actually dying for our sins. And it rests upon the foundation of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Jesus actually being raised from the dead. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to the gospel. To have no resurrection is to have no gospel. They live and die together. To have one without the other is to have a false gospel. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have one without the other. So the question I have for you is this. What kind of gospel do you believe? Like you have to ask yourself. Like this isn't just like an exercise in the pastor trying to fill time by just throwing out random questions. Like I'm legitimately asking you to think and to wrestle. What kind of gospel do I believe? Do I have true belief in the true gospel as it is defined and delineated here in the scriptures, or do I have false belief because I'm resting in a false gospel? See, the way you know that you have true belief in the true gospel is if you hold these gospel facts alone, Christ crucified for sins and Christ resurrected to newness of life. To make a claim of true belief and yet, in some way, deny any of these gospel elements is to ultimately have false belief because ultimately you have a false gospel. Like, we can't just come to these verses and go, man, 
Christ died, I'll buy that. Christ buried, I mean, he died, so obviously they stuck him in the ground, but, but Christ was raised, no way. False gospel. If you're saying, I'm a Christian, no resurrection, not a Christian. False gospel, false belief. If somehow you buy into the fact, yes, I might buy into the fact that he was resurrected. I'm buying to the fact that he was crucified on this Roman torture device across, but was he really the Christ? Uh, probably just a good teacher. False gospel. False belief. All of these elements have to be there. We can't play gospel mathematics here. We can't add or subtract to these things. The moment you add or subtract to this gospel formula, you trip into the world of false belief and false gospel. So I ask you again, do you have true belief in the true gospel as it is found here in these verses? True belief rests upon a true gospel. And now what Paul does is he turns to these last three verses and he's going to talk to us about how it talks to us about what the true gospel leads us to, which is true grace. The true gospel leads us to true grace. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. <laughs> I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me, it was not in vain. It was not empty. It did, it did not land to no effect. On the contrary, as a result of the grace of God, I worked harder than any of them, these other apostles. Though actually it wasn't I, but it was the grace of God with me. It was the grace of God like a co-worker who came alongside me. It was God's grace with me that equipped me to actually be able to give and pour myself out to God in this way. And he says, whether then it was I or they, these other apostles, what you need to know is this. We all have been saved by the same grace. We have all been redeemed by the same Christ. We have all preached to you the same true gospel of Christ crucified for sins, Christ resurrected from the dead. And no matter whether it was me, no matter whether it was them, you have received, you have believed, you stand on this truth, you are being saved by these things. Do you have the true gospel? I'm just going to end with what Paul, Paul wrote here when he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that... He appeared. Let's pray.